this time of year, it's not uncommon for churches to put on a special Christmas program, maybe including a nativity scene, perhaps a cantata or a drama based more or less upon the biblical account of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I propose this morning to present a drama, yet not one that's acted out on a stage as we contemplate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The author and principal actor in this drama is the triune God. His supporting cast is drawn largely from the ranks of this world's nobodies. The stage for this drama is the panorama of redemptive history planned in eternity, unfolded over the course of the centuries, and culminating in the arrival of the promised and long-anticipated Redeemer. The script for our drama is the inspired Word of God. The audience for whose benefit this divine performance is given is a world of guilty sinners living under the veil of darkness and death. In the staging of this drama, we will first peek behind the veil that separates time from eternity to see the planning of Christmas. Next, we will reflect upon the miracle which is Christmas. And then we will conclude by unwrapping two blessed presents the miracle of Christmas brings to us that is, those of us who embrace the very best of gifts. I invite you to open your Bibles, not to Matthew chapter 1 or to Luke chapter 2, but to a text that you may not associate with Christmas at all. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 4. Please follow with me as I read the first seven verses. <clears throat> now, I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now this morning we're going to consider Paul's Christmas drama in three acts. Here he presents us with something of a cliff notes summary of the broad sweep of the Christmas story, begun in eternity, unfolded in time, and staged for our present and eternal happiness. So our drama this morning is going to have three acts. 
We're going to look at Christmas planning when the fullness of time came. Secondly, we're going to look at Act 2, Christmas program. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then in Act 3, we're going to look at Christmas presents. In order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So let us consider in the unfolding of this drama of Christmas, Christmas planning, when the fullness of time came. So the curtain for, for Act 1 here opens, with the, opens behind the veil which separates time from eternity. It takes place when only God was, which anticipated the very first words of Genesis, in the beginning, God. Now, as we consider Act 1, as we look at Christmas planning, we're going to look at two scenes from Act 1. And scene 1 is the Father and the Son in eternity past. The planning of Christmas is of ancient origin. Scene 1 catapults us back into eternity, and the special event of Christ coming into the world was planned by the triune God before He spoke the universe into existence. Bethlehem's babe in His divine nature has no beginning, and He has no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is forever one with the Father, being equal to Him and to the Holy Spirit. And so John introduces his gospel with the words reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And we know that this Word is the second person of the Trinity. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Some seven centuries before John wrote, the prophet Micah foresaw the eternal Son would invade the realm of time and space. We read in Micah 5 and verse 2, His goings forth, speaking of the Son, speaking of Christ, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Since God the Father in eternity determined to send His Son, we might say that the planning of Christmas is as old as God is, indeed, as old as God who has no beginning. We might also say that Christmas was always in the heart of God. It was always His plan to send His beloved Son into this world. This leads us to ask, well, why, why did God plan Christmas? Well, the answer is as simple as it is wonderful. God planned Christmas so that He might show His saving love to a world of sinners like you and me. We'll talk more about that later, but the point I want to make here is this. We must never separate the purpose of Christmas, that is the salvation of sinners from the planning of Christmas in the sending of Jesus into this world. 
let us understand that God who decreed Adam's fall into sin also decreed the salvation of sinners in his son. God determined our redemption before he uttered his first syllable of creation. Furthermore, we are reminded of a wonderful truth about the unique relationship of God the Father and God the Son. They are one God, one in eternal divine being. They are same in substance, equal in power and glory, as the good old catechism teaches. Therefore, they share equally in eternal divine attributes. The uncreated Son possesses all power. He is omnipotent. He possesses all wisdom. He is omniscient. He is everywhere present. He is omnipresent. And so the Father and the Son, they are one in divine purpose, one in divine plan. This is why Jesus could say, I and the Father are what? We're one. And so our Lord could refer to himself as the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. He was determined in eternity to come to be slain in time. Jesus' many statements of his being sent from the Father underscores his consciousness that he had come forth from the Father to use the language of the Apostle Paul in the fullness of time. Lying behind the events of scene one is what theologians call the council of redemption or the covenant of redemption between the three persons of the Trinity in the planning and in the procuring and in the applying of salvation to sinners. In eternity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit determined that the Son would come into the world at the appointment of the Father to save a world of sinners given to Jesus as the gift of His love from His Father. So even before we speak of salvation being a gift to sinners, we must behold elect sinners as a gift given by the Father to the Son of His love. Do you ever think of yourself that way, brothers and sisters? That you are a gift from the Father to the Son. We think of the Son being a gift to us, and that's certainly and gloriously true. But we are also a gift given by the Father to the Son. And this is how we must understand such passages as John 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And John 10 and verse 29. My Father who has given them to me. And John 17 and verse 24. In his high priestly prayer. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, etc. And so here as we consider Christmas planning in Act 1, we've seen the Father and the Son briefly in eternity past. Scene 2, consider the Son's saving mission received from the Father. You see, if Scene 1 focuses our attention upon the planning of Christmas, Scene 2 spots light the Son accepting the commission that He received from His Father. 
and with gracious resignation and sweet submission, and may I even say eager anticipation, the Son accepted this mission from the Father to come in and come down to this world and save those that were given to Him. John 6 and verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And that is to save a remnant from, the, from sinful mankind, which the book of Revelation says that no man can number. And what was the will of the Father? What was the mission that the divine Son accepted from his Father? Well, I've already tipped my hand. It's nothing less than the saving of a world of lost sinners by the sacrifice of himself. Luke 19 and verse 10, Jesus makes this statement, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And Matthew 20, verse 28, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word Paul uses in Galatians 4 to describe Jesus' reception of his commission from the hand of the Father means to be sent out. It means to be dispatched on a mission. Paul used this same word to underscore his own commission given him by the ascended Lord. Acts 22 and verse 21. And he, that is the ascended Christ, said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. God the Father sent God the Son into this world to save sinners. And God the Son ascended on high and gave this commission to his apostle to go out and to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the Father sent His beloved Son far away from heaven into a broken world on a mission of mercy. Indeed, it was a mission of search and rescue, of salvation of sinners from divine judgment. So Jesus tells us in John 3 and verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The reason we are saved, brothers and sisters, is because Jesus fulfilled his commission of coming into this world to save the Father's elect. And the elect have been and are being and will be saved until the final number of the elect is complete. And then the Lord Jesus shall return in judgment. Fully knowing the dreadful personal cost of accomplishing the Father's terrible mission, our Lord could yet speak of His duty to His Father as food that sustained His soul. John 4 and verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. He sent the disciples into Samaria to buy food. They were hungry. He was hungry too. He hadn't fed himself with anything. And yet when the disciples come back, he speaks of the mission that he had come. And that mission was to be fulfilled. And the fulfilling of that mission was to him as, ne as his necessary food and drink. 
He thrived upon it. Spurgeon says, this occupied all his thoughts and success in it was refreshing to his heart. This wonderful willingness of Christ to come in the fullness of time at his Father's behest helps us begin to understand, and I don't think we ever completely will, even in glory, the amazing love of our triune God for sinners like us. I read John 3.17, John 3.16, you know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that's Christmas planning. When the fullness of time came, the first scene, the Father and the Son in eternity passed. The second scene, the Son's saving mission received from His Father. Now we come to Act 2, Christmas program. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And we're going to consider Act 2 with three scenes. First of all, scene one, it's perfect timing. God sending his son into this world. That is, he sent God to us. So the curtain for Act 2 opens with the eternal son of God entering the realm of time, the uncreated one invading the realm of his creation. And for Paul, the advent of the son from heaven it fills up the hourglass, the last grain of sand falling at God's precise moment, determined before time began. When the fullness of time came, Jesus was sent forth into this world. This phrase, when the fullness of time came, suggests several important truths. First, it suggests that the living God is the sovereign ruler over the world. He governs space, and He governs time, and He controls all of history from the beginning to the end, and everything in between, and all the lives of all those that will ever live and die in this world, including you and me. So He determined the exact moment of Christ's arrival. And this He decided before He uttered His first Creative word, when time had reached its predetermined mark, God the Father sent His Son into this world. Not a moment before, not a moment after. Right, we would say, on time. Second, the fullness of time suggests the fulfillment of all the ancient prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah, beginning with the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 of the head-crushing seed of the woman, and then further elaborated upon and anticipated by all the types and shadows under the Old Covenant that all pointed forward to the coming of this one. Indeed, the priesthood of the Old Covenant, the sacrifices, the prophecies, the prophets themselves, David as the head of the royal line which would eventuate in his son of David, in his son Jesus Christ coming. The Savior whom God had appointed before time, 
He anointed our prophet, priest, and king. And that time finally arrived. This is the thing into which angels long to look and understand. These are the things that the sages and prophets long to see with their eyes. The patriarchs as well long to see the arrival of this coming one. And now he had come. He is the Moses-like prophet who would bring God's word to his people. He is the suffering servant priest who would provide our redemption. And he is the greater than David-like prince who would sway his gracious scepter as the king of righteousness and of peace. The fullness of time had come. The promised coming of Emmanuel, God with us, now becomes a blessed reality. Third, the fullness of time came to end the old covenant and to inaugurate the new The Mosaic Covenant had served its purpose in preparing Israel for the arrival of its Messiah, who would bring in the fullness of covenant blessing. That's Paul's point earlier in Galatians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The arrival of Christ brought the seed, or he brought the Israel of God from a state of immaturity to maturity, from one of promise to one of fulfillment, taking Israel as an underage son into the full possession of his promised inheritance. Israel's adulthood arrived, you see, with their promised Messiah. His coming ushered Abraham's true children into the status and blessing of full-grown sons. Finally, the fullness of time contemplates and suggests the situation of the world into which Jesus came. Politically, Rome's power, which dominated the world, had reached its apex. The Caesars had, by this time, built advanced, well-traveled roads throughout the known world that paved the way for the spread of the gospel. Intellectually and philosophically, the world had witnessed the utter bankruptcy of all systems of thought and the impotence of pagan religion to bring redemption and peace to mankind. Materially, every source of temporal and sensual pleasure had been tried and found unsatisfying. Man's sinful ingenuity and cruel barbarity had reached its zenith. Disgusting immorality, inhuman brutality, rampant suicide, empty atheism, and utter despair marked the world when Jesus arrived. Sounds like today. When the fullness of time came, the world was ripe for the arrival of him who is its only hope. The one who came to seek and to save that which is lost, sinners like you and like me. So let us look next at scene two as we consider Christmas program. It's wonderful story. The miraculous union of deity and humanity. We've seen God sending his son into the world, God to us, Now we see the miraculous union of deity and humanity, and that is God with us. Scene 2 opens in the little town of Bethlehem. 
with the birth of our promised Savior. Paul employs very simple, packed language to describe the unfathomable mystery of the Incarnation, God becoming one with man. The fully divine, eternal second person of the Godhead entered the realm of time and space and was born into this world fully human as Mary's firstborn, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the, ver in the womb of His virgin mother. As we read in Luke's Gospel, He was born of a woman, Paul says here in Galatians chapter 4. And dear ones, here is deep mystery. Who can plumb the infinite depths of the Incarnation? What sage can comprehend the marvel of God becoming one with man? Let us only believe and then be lost in wonder, love, and praise. God becomes nothing less than God, and Jesus becomes fully human, and that is fully except of sin. Consider this, the creator of the universe becomes one with his creation. The father of eternity is united with our humanity, a child born in time. He is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. God's very first promise was uttered to our fallen first mother, Eve's illustrious seed, God promised, would one day gloriously triumph over our arch enemy. To Mary was given the unique privilege of carrying and giving birth to that holy one that would bruise the serpent's head and set his people free from sin and death and hell. Prophets over the intervening centuries enlarged upon that original promise with increasing clarity. And through the evangelical prophet Isaiah came the well-known prophecy of his coming, chapter 7 of Isaiah and verse 14. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Chapter 9 and verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now you probably recognize those verses as repeated somewhere else, even in the New Testament, and we read them in Matthew chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, when the angel speaks to Joseph betrothed to the mother of our Lord. Imagine his wondering ears when he listens to this angel speaking to him. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. 
What a wonderful promise had been uttered and now being realized that this one is to come into the world, a world of hopeless sinners, to save them from their sin and from Satan and from hell. Isaiah's contemporary Micah foretold the humble place where God's glorious Son would make His entrance into this world, where the eternal God would become one with our humanity. Micah 5 and verse 2, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He's going to be born in a very small town. He's not being born in Jerusalem. He's being born in Bethlehem, which interestingly enough, means house of bread. What an appropriate place for the bread of life to be born. John relates the profound mystery of the Incarnation the union of divinity with our humanity in John chapter 1 and verse 14. I read verses 1 and 2, now verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Wonderful beyond words is that the eternal, sinless Son of God stoops so low to dwell with sinful man, to veil His infinite glory behind our common humanity, to be born in obscurity to lift us to glory. That's what's happening here. Charles Wesley marveled at the incarnation of our Savior. He wrote, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That brings us to scene three. We've seen the perfect timing God sending His Son into this world, God to us. It's wonderful story in scene two, the miraculous union of deity with humanity, God with us. And now scene three, it's glorious message. Jesus' legal identification with sinners. God for us. If scene two reveals Jesus' submission to God's eternal plan by identifying forever with our humanity, Scene 3 points us to his subjection to God's law, in which he identified with our guilt as breakers of God's commandments. We read that God's Son was born under the law, that is, subject to all of its duties and liable to its curse. He is born as the second Adam, the representative of all whom he came to save. You see, the first Adam plunged mankind into sin and misery. But the second Adam comes and all that he represents to take away their sin and to usher in eternal glory. That's what we're looking for, brothers and sisters. 
that Jesus was born under the law is first shown by his circumcision in the temple and by his mother's purification after he was born. You see, under the old covenant, God gave the rites of circumcision and purification to remind his people that all are born in sin. All need redemption. Circumcision reminded the Jew that sin is transmitted from one generation to the next. And though Jesus was born without sin, his circumcision, by his circumcision, he identified with the very sinners that he came to save. That Jesus was born under the law is clear, secondly, from his baptism. God gave the ritual of baptism to graphically portray the spiritual cleansing that happens when we repent of our sin. Jesus, of course, had no sins to confess. And therefore, he had no need for spiritual cleansing. And yet, he told John to baptize him in order to fulfill all righteousness. You remember from John, or from Matthew chapter 3, and I think verse 15. Yet he submitted himself to baptism again to identify with the very sinners that he came to save. Jesus, that Jesus was born under the law is evident, thirdly, in his perfect obedience to all of the commandments of the law. His absolute perfect obedience to God's law provides the foundation of the perfect righteousness of God, which he imputes to all who believe upon his Son. By the miracle of his virgin conception by the Holy Spirit, you see, Jesus was shielded from inheriting our sin nature and our guilt before God. And unlike each one of us, including his mother Mary, we are sinners at birth. Jesus entered this world without the record of Adam's guilt and without Adam's fallen nature. Not only was he conceived without sin, from his birth to his death, our Savior never committed a single sin in thought, word, or deed. And brethren, this must be so. Only a sinless Savior may offer himself as an acceptable sacrifice for sinners. There must not be any blot or blemish upon him, or God will not accept him. And so he was. The writer of the Hebrews attests to this fact when he writes in Hebrews 7 and verse 26, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heaven. What an amazing thing it is that he who gave the law subjected himself to the law. He was not above it. And I say this reverently, that we see that even God himself is not above his law. His law is an expression of his character. Jesus never broke one of his commandments. And wonderful, too, is that Jesus, the glorious lawgiver, substituted himself in the place of wretched lawbreakers like you and me. Finally, by being born under the law, Jesus identified himself with the sinners that he came to save. 
He subjected himself to the law's precepts for us, fulfilling all of God's commandments perfectly on our behalf. And then he submitted himself to the law's penalty, dying under the wrath of God to make eternal payment for our sin. So he identified with the law's precepts. He identified with the law's penalties on our behalf. And he submitted himself ultimately to the law by fully obeying and then dying so that we might be delivered from our sin and from Satan and from the wrath to come. Now, brethren, these things we know. And these things we know so well. And you know that familiarity breeds contempt. But these things should be special to us every time we hear them. They should thrill our hearts. He came to save sinners such as us. The holy came to save the unholy. And because he substituted himself under the law in our place, beloved, we have both forgiveness of sin and justification. And this the Father did to the Son so that we might be forgiven and have his righteousness. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He that is the Father made him the Son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We were liable to damnation. And Jesus stood in our place, pushed us aside, and bore the wrath of God that was due us in our place. He took all of our vices and he gave us all of his virtues. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He came to say, seek and to save sinners like you and me by the sacrifice of himself. Very briefly, Act 3. We've seen Christmas planning and Christmas, the Christmas program. Thirdly, Christmas presents. In the words, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. With the three little words in order that, in verse 5, Paul tells us why Christ left glory and entered this world, born of a woman, born under the law. God gave us the gift of his Son to provide in him two colossal blessings, blessings promised at Christmas, but ultimately purchased at Easter. Notice scene one, briefly, the legal present. Delivered, were delivered from the law's curse. We've just unwrapped by anticipation this first present. Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. And brethren, this word redeem, what a precious word it is. It means to purchase, especially to purchase from slavery. By the payment of a price. We were slaves in sin. And Jesus Christ purchased us. He bought us. Not with the things of this world. Not with silver or gold. But with his precious blood. He purchased us from our sin. Bought us out of the marketplace of our rebellion. And placed us in the kingdom of God. You see we deserve God's wrath. 
as slaves of sin. We were willing slaves. But Jesus paid the price to free us from God's curse upon us for our sin. You back up into Galatians chapter 3 and you read this wonderful statement. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, verse 13, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He was hanged on a tree for the likes of you and me. Because we are redeemed from God's curse, we receive all of God's blessings in Christ. We were once cursed, now we are infinitely blessed. Because we are redeemed from God's curse, all of the blessings that God intended to grant us in Jesus Christ become ours. Augustus Toplady put it this way, How vast the benefits divine which we in Christ possess. We are redeemed from guilt and shame and called to holiness. But not for works which we have done or shall hereafter do, hath God decreed on sinful men salvation to bestow. So the first scene, the legal presence, deliver from God's curse, given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ in his place. Scene two, the family present. That is, reception into God's family. Reception into God's family. And because you are sons, God has sent forth His Spirit, or the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that's what it means to receive the adoption of sons. Once only the name, name of God on our lips was a curse. Now we have a disposition of sons and we speak to God as our father. No longer are we cowering knowing that we deserve judgment from a just God. Now we're able to appeal to him as sons. Come to him as our father, as his spiritual children. You see, redemption solves our legal problem. Adoption solves our family problem. Before we were children of the devil, separated from God's family, alienated from God. So God sent Christ into the world not only to make us right before him, but also to adopt us as his children, because Jesus is our elder brother. We are children of God through him. But he was alienated from God. It cost him something to bring us into his family. He was alienated from God while on the cross that we might be reconciled to the Father, adopted into his family. Jesus, you'll remember, cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might cry, Abba, Father. You see, Christ came into this world to make us God's beloved children for time and for eternity. He redeemed us from being accursed children of the devil so that we might become the beloved children of God. So we sing of 
great blessings belonging to us, redeemed, adopted children. Blessed are the sons of God. They are bought with Christ's own blood. They are ransomed from the grave. Life eternal they shall have. So in closing this morning, I, I just have this simple question. Do you have these two most wonderful of all possible Christian Christmas presents? Do you have redemption from the curse of sin? And do you have adoption? Have you received adoption into the family of God? Are you able to relate to God as your father? Do you delight to speak to him? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that in the beloved you're accepted before God? You see, the Christmas story really has its fulfillment a few months later, according to our time, in Easter. Have you embraced the Son? He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Well, may you be able to say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. He is able to provide all that you need for time and for eternity. If you know him only by name and you don't know him spiritually, oh, may God open your eyes to embrace him today. May this Christmas season be the season of your new birth where you know you're redeemed from the curse of the law and you've been adopted into the family of God. May these be whatever you might receive the rest of your life be your two chief gifts, redemption and adoption. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just reminded that no matter what we may have in this world, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? But he who has nothing in this world but has Christ has everything. He may have little for time, but he has everything he needs for eternity. And so we pray that you would take this message this morning, as familiar as it may be to our thick ears, bore them through by the finger of your grace, help us to, to hear with freshness the glorious gospel message that Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Lord, let us not leave the same way we came. If we're not yours, make us yours by grace. If we are yours and, and these things have become so commonplace to us that we're liable to treat them with contempt, make them fresh, make them powerful in our hearts. Cause us to look upon him who's looked upon us. He looked upon us with love. Lord, may we be those of whom it is said, we love him because he first loved us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.